middle of a series on the church called Christ and His Bride. We're learning more of what God has done and the unique relationship the church has with Christ. And there is probably no greater passage to express this than this passage. It is a familiar passage, but as we read down through it, verse 32 is gonna be the emphasis of what we're gonna look at in light of this text. Ephesians chapter five, verse 22 reads this way, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle in any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall be joined to his, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, and here's the key verse. This mystery is great, but I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church. You may be seated. Lord Jesus, this passage is a tremendous truth. And it stirs our heart quickly as we read it in our relationships with those you have put into uh, marriage and those who look forward to marriage. But ultimately, this passage even has a greater message. And that is the relationship between Jesus and his bride. Christ and his church. And Lord, for ages, many did not understand that. But Paul says the mystery has been revealed now. So Lord, let us dig into that mystery a little more. Let us understand in a deeper, fuller way the relationship of Jesus and his bride. We ask that your spirit would help us do that. Lord, left alone, we are um, but messing with words and truths that cannot pierce hearts. So we ask that the Spirit of God would accompany the teaching of the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this passage. It's, um, it's a passage that you read, and most of the time, and you, and you should, you see the relationship between a husband and a wife. I was digging through it this week and realized that this is the one page in my Bible that is falling out. I don't know what that means. Um, maybe it's uh, wearing on you to say, oh man, I'm supposed to be a picture of Christ to my wife. And um, probably many tears have loosened the pages. But ultimately, Paul says in verse 32 that this is a mystery. 
And it is pointing to something greater. This is why if you've ever heard us speak on marriage, we, we teach constantly the importance of it because of what it represents. It represents something so much greater than, than as, as wonderful it is as two people coming together and becoming one flesh and enjoying this life that God has put them together for. There is a much greater purpose to marriage. And that, that it symbolizes Christ in his church. That's what our marriages are supposed to represent. Paul does great lengths here to help the whole family know how to serve the Lord. He deals with wives, he deals with husbands, he deals with children in chapter six. Um, Fathers, slaves, workers, co-workers, masters, company owners to help us realize that God has a grander design for us. But ultimately, this passage helps you remember that we have Jesus, who is our head, who is our savior. William Carey was one of my favorite missionaries. He is said to be the father of modern day missions. In the late 1700s, he got on a boat and sailed to India. There had been very few people there ever to share the gospel. In fact, his ministry is really the the marker of that going overseas. He lived there many years and he ended up dying there. In fact, he died in 1834 after a long ministry. And there's many things uh, that I loved about William Carey's ministry, but he said something before his death, and, and this is the, the idea of today's message of where it's going and what I believe the scriptures are teaching here. He said this on his deathbed to one of his dear friends. He said this, quote, you have been saying much about Dr. Carey and his work. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's savior. That was how he left them. Speak about Dr. Carey's savior. Some of you have been blessed and have worked very hard to have godly marriages. When people look at your marriage, should they see the Lord Jesus Christ or should they just see somebody who maybe did better than somebody else? Do they see Jesus? Do they speak about your Savior when they're around you? When we study the church, and if we study the scriptures properly, we are to make much of Christ. And it, it's amazing when you study Paul, even when he comes around the home, the relationship between men and women and children and jobs and all of that, he can't but help bring out Christ to make much of him. See, Paul said, without him, we have nothing. We have nothing. So I want to look at this passage this morning with that perspective. Certainly, as you listen to the words of Scripture, I don't doubt you'll be challenged as a wife or a husband as you look through this. But our goal is to make much of Christ, and so I want to look at it that way because that's what verse 32 says. This mystery is great, but I am speaking in reference to Christ in his church. Well, first of all, let's talk about that mystery. What does he mean by that? Well, from ages past, man did not fully understand God's plan. He was revealing his redemptive history as he went along. And it was mysterious to them who Christ was and what he was going to do when he came to this earth. 
In fact, most thought he would set his kingdom up there. Even his own disciples asked to sit on the right and the left, thinking that the kingdom was then. They missed the fact that Christ had to die, suffer for the sins of man so that they could enter into the kingdom. And so now this mystery has been revealed. It is a great mystery that Christ has come and he is gathering another people to himself. He has been the God of Israel. And while Israel falls under the disciplined hand of God, he is now gathering another people to himself that he will make the two into one someday. And he calls this group his ecclesia, the church, the bride. This is what he has come for, to gather this unique, special people, these people that are precious to him, First Peter 2 says. And so when we look at this, we begin to realize that, yes, this is a beautiful passage on husbands and wives, but it is even more a beautiful passage of how Christ loves his church. So let me give you five thoughts, and we'll preach our way right into communion this morning. Number one, Christ is the Savior and head of the church. Notice it starts out with wives be subject to your own husbands. There's some key words in here, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Notice this, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, see the repetition of that, so also the wife ought to be to their husbands and everything. So, number one, we are to submit to Christ as the head of the church. Our entire belief system is completely based upon the fact and believing that Jesus is the central figure to all that we have. He is the authority of all that we, we hold to. He is the central figure of the scriptures. And thus, he is the central figure of Grace Bible Church in all churches that claim to be of God, to truly be claim of the scriptures and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be that head. He is the one that we lay down. Notice the, the command is given to wives to be subject to their own husbands, not to other husbands, but to their own. And so there's a solidarity to submission in this text. Our submission is solidarily towards Christ. That's where our submission is. And certainly, as in marriage, he does set up um, a, a headship within marriage. He sets up a figure headship type in, in the church as well with elders and deacons and so on. But our solidarity is to Jesus Christ. He is the head. He is where the submission goes. Listen to these verses that repeat this theme. Just jot these down. Ephesians 1, And he, God, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet. All things. Not some of them. Not portions of doctrine or parts of the church. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that's Christ, as head over all things to the church. Ephesians chapter 4, 15 and 16, we are to grow up in all respect, aspects into him, Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body being fit and held together by what every joint supplies. So that verse, you remember just a few weeks ago, we talked that verse is not only including the headship of Christ, but he also holds us together. We're just a bag of bones without him that just kind of crumble and are in a pile. He is the, he is the sinew, he is the tendons. He is the ligaments that hold us together, yet he is the head. He is the head of all 
things. Colossians 1, 18 and 19. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That proves he'll raise you if you die before he returns. Because he raised Jesus. That's what that says there. So that he himself will come to have first place into everything. Preference. He is the protos. He is the first place. He has given preference to everything. For it was, listen to this, the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Colossians chapter two, verse nine and 10, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. Colossians two, 18 and 19. Let no one defraud or or the idea of keep defrauding you because people are always defrauding people away from the church always trying to introduce something else. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. That's Jesus. He's the prize. Don't let anybody defraud you of him by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking stand on visions he has seen or inflated with cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joint and ligament grows with the growth which is from God. I love that. Don't let someone defraud you of the prize. And and it, and it isn't hard when you fall in love with Christ through the word of God, you start to sniff out things that aren't of God. John told us in 1 John that there's many antichrists and, and they don't believe the word and you start to know and you go, wow, that just... That, that whole system that they're doing over there, just it doesn't put Christ in the center. It's, it's so man-centered, it just exalts man. You'll see it, you'll sniff it out. And like a wife only should submit to her own husband, so the church only submits to the Lord. He is the Lord. We worship no other gods, no beings, no systems, no peoples, no groups, no buildings, etc. We put our authority or put ourselves under the authority of Christ. This has been a problem with mankind. Israel had the problem. When Israel worshiped other gods, the true and living God said, you're playing the harlot. He said it four times in Hosea. You can look at that phrase. Four times in the book of Hosea he says this. He says it in Isaiah and several other prophets. But four times he says you're playing the harlot because you don't leave me as head. Hosea chapter four, verse 12, my people consult with wooden idols. This is a wooden idol, could be. Gotta be careful of these things. And their diviners, one, informs them, for spirit of idolatry has led them astray and they have played the heart departing from God. See, here's my point. Whether you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament, Man is in desperate need of a savior. He's in need of the head of the church. And it doesn't take long to jot down a few things and realize that man is in desperate need. He constantly has given so much, but he shows that he cannot live without a savior. He cannot live without the head. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You lop off the head, things don't go rest good well for the rest, does it? And so, as we take a quick fly over the Old Testament, let me give you several reasons to believe that we need a Savior. And man has always been in need of a Savior. Notice at the end of verse 23, it says, he himself being the Savior of the body. We need a Savior. Start in the garden with Adam and Eve. 
It doesn't take you long to realize they need a savior. They believe the words of Satan over the words of God. They found themselves naked, ashamed, and hiding. That's what sin does. Sin does that every time to you. You find yourself naked, ashamed, and hiding from God if you don't repent of it. They needed a savior. You say, well, maybe we can get a fresh start with the kids. The mom and dad didn't do very well, but let's start with the kids. Maybe they can put it together and live a righteous life. Well, Cain kills Abel, chapter four. You say, well, Scott, maybe the next group can get it together. Well, we'll start over with Noah. And I know the whole world was wicked and there was no, no righteousness within the world except found in, in um, Noah. So we'll start with Noah. So God saves eight people as he judges the world in righteousness. Noah gets off the boat, plants a vineyard, gets drunk. His son Ham looks at his nakedness and, a, and the nation of, Cain, of Canaanites is born a threat, and a thorn in the side of Israel for the rest of its days. You say, well, that didn't work really well. Well, what about the next group? Maybe, maybe the group after that can come off and get things together. Well, that's called the Tower of Babel. They got together and did not want to fill the earth. In fact, they tried to be like God himself, and he changed their languages and dispersed them. We say, well, Scott, maybe the next group can get it right. Maybe there can be a new nation of people. We'll just let the other nations go and we'll just start a new nation. Well, it was called Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. It wasn't Abraham that was going to change, man. He wasn't the savior. He lied often about Sarah, who she was, took Hagar, her, her handmaiden, and started the nation of Ishmaelites. Father of the Arab world that still to this day wars against the nation of Israel. That did not work very well. Man needs a savior. We'll say, well, well, what about after 400 years of captivity, of learning their lessons, and a new leader like Moses, and, and maybe a great law to lead them? How will that work? Well, didn't work all that great. The Bible says they were a complaining, stiff-necked people who rejected the word of God. Ten times you have complained against me, God said. I brought you to the nation, the land of Canaan. I showed it to you, and you rejected my word. Often he opened the ground and swallowed them up, sent snakes among them. They were a wicked people who needed a savior. And you say, well, what about if they had their own land? What about if they had their own kingdom where they could run out all the bad guys and they could gather together in one giant homeschool? I mean, did I say that? Um, where, where they could be away from everybody else or, or, or one little Christian community that hides up in the Colorado Rockies so that no one can get to them. I think that's what happened. God brought them into the land, ran them out, killed their enemies before them. And it wasn't long before they took the law, they took the sacrificial system, they took the temple of God, and they used it as a template to worship the gods of the world. They need a savior. Well, what about if we send some judges among them? Maybe that will get them to live righteous so God will accept them. Well, he sent some judges. Remember Gideon? Pretty good guy. Led a lot of guys, but he got down to 300. They blew a lot of trumpets broke some jars, screamed a lot, and everybody killed themselves. It was a great day. But if you follow the story, Gideon returns back to idols. Oh, what about Samson? There's a good guy. Hey, we like Samson. Strong guy, strong personality. He could lead this group back. 
Like so many, he takes what is of God's and he uses it for his own pleasure. And though God uses these men and shows himself greatly, and I'm not downplaying these beautiful stories, but the point is we need a savior. You say, well, what happened next? Well, remember they said, we need a king. We just need to be like everybody else and have a king. I'll give you a king. He's head and shoulders above everybody. Oh, Saul worked out really well. He led the nation into deceit. He rejected God's word, killed the prophets. Say, well, we just need a better king. Well, David came along. David was a good king. Loved God, sat after him. But he wasn't a savior. He lied and stole another woman. He cheated. And he raised a son who hated him. He wasn't a savior. You say, well, what about a really wise king? Solomon, right? The wisest man of all the world. The world's history books record this man, let alone clearly what the Bible teaches of him. So wise that the, the rulers of the world came to him for counsel. Solomon, because he was not the savior, fell into corruption, harems, storehouses of sin. His wisdom could not redeem anyone. In fact, his two boys took the kingdom of God, that nation of Israel, and split it into two. And the northern tribe never pursued God again. Well, how about the prophets? God would, God would send these prophets, and they would come, and they would tell man what they need to know about God. Jesus says, which of the prophets did you not kill and persecute? What about men that walked and talked with Jesus when he was on the earth. What about those guys? Surely they would listen to them. Nope, they were all killed or banned. Uh, um, Ten were killed in terrible deaths, and John was banned away from the church. Well, what about Jesus and some good traditions? How about that? How about Jesus and doing the right thing? That sounds like a good motto. Paul wrote in Galatians, who has bewitched you that you would begin by the spirit and end in the flesh? See, when we look at the history of man from the beginning to, to this day, man is in desperate need of a savior. And that's what I love about this passage. Look at the end of verse 23. He himself being the savior of the body. That's what you need is you need a savior. Man doesn't need another gimmick. He doesn't need another religion. He doesn't need another um, feel good about yourself. You're your own best healer. Whatever the new book is out that is, that doesn't save him. He needs a savior. And that's why the church submits to Christ in everything. Because if you need a savior, you can't say, well, I need a savior, but can I bring this too? Have you ever been to... Um, one of, like, say like Disneyland or one of those where you got to go through one of those turnstiles. And you go, hey, I just want to bring in my rolling luggage with me. Or, or you try to squeeze in with your kids because you don't want to be separated from, and the turnstile just lets one in at a time. That's how God brings us to his son as the savior. He brings us through that turnstile. We submit to him, okay, Lord, I can't go over this. I can't go around it. I will go through the narrow gate that is Christ alone. We need a savior. He is the head. And it's not hard to think that the head gives direction and the body responds. The head gives direction and the body responds. 
I only speak here this morning because the brain that um, is the control center of me is able to, to formulize thoughts and words and all the things that were studied and get them out and, and somehow my tongue and lips start working and it, and it gets out and my hands move. Take off the head, none of that happens. Too many churches these days run around with a headless body and they become crippled and paralyzed. And when there's no response to the head, there is seriously, serious spiritual dysfunction. But on the other hand, when the body responds to the head, there is this incredible spiritual function of the church. Arms are moving, legs are moving. The body of Christ is moving together as one accord. We're caring for each other. We're seeing needs and meeting them. So Christ was and is the supreme, ultimate model of submission. He laid it down and showed us how it works. He submitted to the Father. He submitted even to the point of death, Philippians 2 tells us. A sinless life. And he says, follow me. Follow me. That's what the church does. That's what this church does. We are following Christ. He is the head and he is the perfect example. And thus we willingly submit to him. One other thing that you find in this is that verse 23 says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Just let me make a statement here particularly about the church. There cannot be co-leaders. You can't, it doesn't work. He wants Christ as the head. We don't say, oh, it's Christ and the elders. We'll lead you together. Or it's Christ and the leadership and we'll tell you what the Bible has to say. We'll give you revelation of what it is. Or you come to us and we will provide forgiveness. See, you know, you know religions like this. See, we don't look as co-leaders with Christ. We merely are under shepherds. Uh, um, the word is a galley rower. We're down on the bottom of the ship as elders. Just pull along. And there's the captain of our salvation. Pull, guys. Pull. He is the leader. We submit to him. Second thought. Christ has a sacrificial love for the church. Look at verse 25. Buckle up, husbands. But remember, we're talking about Christ and the church here. Husbands, love your wife. And here comes a key phrase, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as Christ loved the ecclesia, bride, the body, just as he loved the church and gave, there's the key verb, gave himself up for her. Ron sang us a song, and I, I, honestly, we don't make this stuff up. I took the second verse of that song and put it in my notes because I love that song. Ron's never done it here. I didn't know he was doing that. It's right here. So you, uh, you don't think I wrote it down when, he was, when I was doing it. Let me read what, uh, Ron, i just amazed at what, how God did that today. Listen to what the second verse of what we just sang, speaking of a, a Christ's sacrificial love for the church. You, you left the air of heaven. That makes you think just a little bit of, boy, there's some different air. To breathe the dust of earth. Boy, that's a contrary statement. Air of heaven. Well, the air of heaven is filled with the voices of angels. The train of God fills the temple. We can see that picture on Isaiah 6. Dust of earth. Man full of sin. Problems. 
You left the air of heaven to breathe the dust of earth and dwell among the outcasts and the poor. He's speaking spiritually. We're outcasts of God. We're poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Ones who don't think they have it all figured out that they need a savior. You came to be forsaken and to die to take our curse so you could be our joy forevermore. See, that's sacrificial love. Step out of heaven. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me briefly. We see this, one of my favorite passages in scripture to remind me of what my Lord came from. Hebrews chapter 10, verse five, therefore when he comes into the world, he says, this is Jesus speaking here, and who is he speaking to in the heavens? I think this is a, an eternal conversation between God and Christ and, and by the inspiration of scriptures we are let in on this because verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins that's not going to work this repeating sacrificial system in verse 3 won't do it and Jesus said in verse 5 sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me see that's sacrificial love he didn't have to get off the throne. He wouldn't have been no less of the perfect God that he is if he remained in heaven. He couldn't be. He could have just remained there, but yet his love was so great, so sacrificial that he came. And you'll notice as it goes down for verse seven and eight and that sacrifice and offering in eight, just they weren't the way God was gonna rescue men. They didn't solve the sin problem. They needed a savior, not a sacrifice of, of bulls and goats. They needed a savior. Verse nine, and then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. I'm gonna take away the first in order to establish the second. I'm gonna be the one who fulfills the law. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill the law. And then that passage in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to the crowd, he says, if you wanna live according to the law, you better do it perfectly. But there was only one who could do that. It was Jesus, so he fulfilled the first. To establish the second, that's, that's this, this gospel witness, that's his marriage, us to him. Verse 10, by, his, by this will we have been sanctified. That Jesus came to live perfect life, to fulfill the law on our account, and to establish this new covenant, this relationship, blood-bought believers brought into the eternal established will of God. And his goal is to sanctify us, set us apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That sacrifice. Philippians chapter two, verse seven said, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being a bondservant. Even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Go back to Ephesians chapter five, verse 26 and 27. So we have a head, we have a Christ who we submit solely to. He is the picture of true sacrificial love in verse 25. But in verse 26 and 27, Christ has a purifying love for the church. Notice this. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, just get your mind around this a little bit. And that he might present to himself the church. 
Now, he can only do that because he's perfect and righteous and holy in all that he does. But his goal is to get a bride, dress her in right, wash away all of her sins, make her perfect in every aspect of her, and present her to himself in all her glory. Now, look at this. Not having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Boy, if your view of the church is anything less than that, it's a poor view of the church. That is what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Christ has been given this bride. He is the groom. He comes, he loves in such a way that he lays down his own life to set this people apart. See, it's why you can get me real excited when you trifle with the church. When we downplay the church. When we don't realize what we are, we are this people that Jesus himself loves so greatly that he said, I'm going to set you aside from all of the world. Very similar to what he did with the nation of Israel. But he took us and said, you're the church, you're my ecclesia, you're my bride, you're my body. I'm going to set you apart and I'm going to wash you clean by my own word. And my word is truth. And you're sanctified by the truth. And there's going to be a presentation. When people get into Revelation, they start seeing the kingdom coming to earth. And the more you study, the more you realize that kingdom is people. And when you study the terminology there, they're coming and they're brought and they're blameless and they're white and they're wearing robes of righteousness and crowns on their heads and there's something spectacular about this group of people. They're blood-bought and they're clean. And they're holy and they're blameless. That term, blameless, I Man, can you get your mind around that just for a moment? Jesus looks at you blameless. I don't look at me blameless. I, I, I can't get there. I mean, I got, understand it theologically. Christ washed all my sins away. He sees me that way. But there is a constant understanding of our shortcomings, isn't there? That's a good thing. That's the spirit of God moving us into the image of Christ. But look how he looks at us, and this is all stated in completed tasks. He looks at us holy, presentable, not with spot or wrinkle. What are those terms coming from? Remember the lambs, the millions of them sacrificed? You weren't supposed to sacrifice one with a broken leg or spots on it? See, we now become this bride. We're pictured in this. We're spotless, just like a wonderful sacrifice. And there's this play on words between Christ being the sacrifice and now the church is cleaned and it's offered before him. Notice, being presented to him, the church in all her glory, just like Christ, free of sin. John says, when you see him, you will be like him. John, uh, 1 John 3, 1, 3, 2. What an amazing statement, blameless, blameless before him. Let me show you one passage. I have so many written down, but I'm out of time. But look at Titus chapter three. Chapter three, verse three, does a classic Pauline uh, move here. It, It first shows us what we used to be and then shows us what we are now. Because if you forget where you came from, you won't worship where you're at. Verse three, chapter three, verse three of Titus. For we, that's plural if you didn't get that. We, that's you and me, all of us here, 
also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And I'm telling you, that was you and me. I think that's the summation of the story of Hosea and Gomer in the book of Hosea. Here's this filthy woman who was foolish, disobedient to the law of God. She had been deceived to believe that her life was built for prostitution. She was enslaved to various lusts. She had pleasure. She was spending her life in this malice, envy, hateful life, hating one another. That was her life, and God took her cleaned her up, wiped everything away and presented her glorious. That's the picture of Hosea and that's the picture of us. This is where we were. This is why he has such a purifying, purifying love. But notice what happens, verse four, but when the kindness of God, our savior, there it is again, we need a savior, right? Kindness of God, our savior, that puts a damper on those who believe that Jesus isn't God, a God our Savior, who his, his love for mankind and his love for mankind, when that appears, when Jesus comes and demonstrates all of this kindness of God, verse five, statement based on nothing of our own here, he saved us. That, listen, that little phrase, three words, he saved us. Now he gives us a qualifying statement so we don't mess with that to come. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Oh God, do you know who I am? Do you know who my parents are? Do you know the choices I made? Do you know that I did this? No, no, you were saved apart from those things. Another qualifier, you were saved according to his mercy. Now here's where the purifying love comes in. Look at this. By the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He loves to take filthy sinners and wash them clean for eternity. Sometimes he gets them an hour before their death, like a thief on the cross, and sometimes he gets them at six across the street here. In all ages in between. And he takes those filthy sinners and he washes them with his own blood and purifies them and makes them blameless and presents them holy. And not only now, but to the last day, the Bible says. Verse six, notice that the spirit whom he's given us that is this regenerating, washing work of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us, and some of your Bibles may say the word lavishly here, richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice connecting Jesus Christ and our Savior early. He said, God, our Savior. You can't separate Christ and God. And then verse seven, so that being justified, there it is, the final statement, declared righteous by his grace, we would be made heirs. That's the bride of Christ. That's the particular, the particular uh, view of, of the church. It's this bride. It's this washed white group of people. Back quickly to Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-eight. Notice that he is faithful. Christ has a faithful love for the church. So husbands ought to love their, wife, love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh. Now notice these terms here, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church. 
He, narrows, he, he, he nourishes and cherishes it. He, he takes care of it. He gives the church what it needs. He feeds it. He gives it the word of God. First Peter says we're like newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the word so you may grow by it if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. He gives nourishment to us. We feed on the word of God. Psalms 34, 3 through 4 said this, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me out from all my fears. I have tasted the Lord and he is good. I've tasted him, we've nourished him. Colossians chapter three, verse 16, Paul says that the word of Christ richly dwell within you. He gives you a lavishing, rich meal of Christ and you're nourished and strengthened and you're cherished in Christ. And some of you will be like, I don't feel very cherished, maybe by my spouse. Well, I pray when you look at this passage that we as husbands and wives start being people who, who live this way because we are in a, we're part of a group of a people that God looks at us this way. Cared for, nourished, cherished, loved, sacrificial love. We are to obey these and represent these. It's impossible to find someone more faithful to us than the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, Christ has an unbroken love for the church. Notice verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What a beautiful verse. This is right out of the marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden. This is words given to show that when men and women come together in marriage, God looks at them in oneness. We always represent one another in marriage. But, but it's bigger than that because verse 32 says, I'm speaking of reference of Christ and his church. So when John says that there's one who always is accusing you, and, Jesus, and the Bible says that Jesus is your advocate, he will not let Satan get away with bringing accusations against his wife, his bride. He protects her. He constantly keeps her cleansed and presentable, for all of eternity. And there's a oneness between us and, and the true church of Jesus Christ around the world is never separated. Is never separated. In him you have been made complete, we read in Colossians 2.10. The only other time this verse is used in the New Testament is by Jesus. He's being challenged by the Pharisees about the law. And he quotes this again. He says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and the two should be joined, uh, and they'd be joined, uh, to, joined to his wife, the two should become one flesh. And then he says this after this, and he says, so no longer, they are, they are no longer two, but the one flesh, whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. Now he is in Matthew chapter 19, he is strictly speaking of marriage there, but Paul takes the very same words, and he speaks of it in a relationship to Jesus Christ and his church. And I thought long and hard about that this week. I said, Lord, what you have done, let no man put asunder. Let no man separate. And that means we're going to keep you as head of the church. We're going to keep you squarely where you are supposed to be. Amonish us. Take us to task, Lord. Whenever we get out of line, whenever we shift from outside of that headship of Jesus Christ and we want to do our own thing and we want to please our own people or, or do something for some other reason than the worship of you, Lord, show us that we are breaking everything you've ever said. Let no one put this asunder. Father, we thank you that we are part of a relationship with Jesus Christ that was
written in the heavens. Before the foundation of the world, Lord, this was your plan. You did not have to kind of see how things would go and then write accordingly. You, you knew it, Lord. And you knew that your first group of people, this nation of Israel, would rebel and fall under great discipline, Lord. But you would rise up another, Lord, that you would eventually join these two to be one people, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you are working and gathering the church to yourself right now. Father, those of us that have been gathered already, may we focus on the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hold to Christ being the head of the church. May we submit to him alone. To him alone, Lord, for worship and headship. Lord, now we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. What a beautiful demonstration of this now, Lord. We've preached this truth, but now we'll see it. We'll see the sacrificial love. We'll see this purifying love on display. We'll see the faithfulness of Christ to do what no one else could to nourish us and cherish us for eternity. And Lord, we'll see an unbroken love that through this covenant that God has kept with us through the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be reminded of this beautiful relationship. So Lord, now as we take the bread and the cup, Lord, help us tie this together, Lord. Help us see the beauty in the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Lord, we thank you that communion is for the believers. It's to remind us of these truths. May we take it in light of that, Lord. It is done for worship. Help us worship you now in this, in Jesus' name.